So the cloud industrial complex is this revolving door that exists between companies that are providing cloud services and the government that is creating the policies demanding these services so that there can be a continuous flow between companies and the government ensuring that they're lining their pockets while they're digitizing the economy. I'm Nisha Bastani, and this is Declaration. The U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, has been emboldened under the Trump administration to target, detain, and deport thousands of immigrants across the U.S. to separate families and conduct workplace raids that resulted in the destruction of communities and collective trauma. Raids like these are up by 650% under Trump. Thousands have been arrested just for being undocumented. We have with us today Jacinta Gonzalez, who has extensive experience fighting against the violence of ICE, and in particular against tech companies like Palantir that work with agencies known for their inhumane treatment of immigrant communities. Jacinta is a senior campaign organizer with Mijente and is based in Phoenix, Arizona. Previously, she worked at Poder in Mexico, organizing the Rio Sonora River Basin Committees against water contamination by the mining industry. She was the lead organizer for the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice Congress of Day Laborers. And in Louisiana, she helped establish a base of day laborers and undocumented families dedicated to building worker power, advancing racial justice, and organizing against deportations in post-Caterina, New Orleans. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also in the studio today, we have Muna and Matt. Hi, everyone. Uh, really excited to talk about this topic today. Very interested in exploring the intersection of communication, technology, and immigration policy. Good to be back and bringing sort of our last couple of episodes together into this part two, and maybe figuring out how we can start to make progress slash dismantle the infrastructures that keep these things going. So in our last episode, we talked about how the hostile immigration environment has come about in the UK and its history. We spoke with Maya Goodfellow, who told us that there's really nothing fundamentally new about the hostile immigration policies in the UK. So we talked about how the racist and white supremacist pillars at the foundation of the border regime were also foundational in the making of the UK. So this is something we've been thinking about for a while, is what's really exceptional about these extremely harsh border regimes that we're seeing today. And of course, the issue of hostility and violence towards migrants has been increasingly in the news under the Trump administration. Um, Maria Sinta, we were hoping you could tell us a bit about the broader context of immigration in the U.S. Um, and how things are or are not different in this administration. Well, I mean, I think for, for some context, you know, a lot of us have been fighting against deportations and immigration enforcement in the U.S. for many, many years. Um, and so we know that under the previous administration, under the Obama administration, we saw a record number of deportations. We saw a closer and closer relationship between local police departments and federal uh, uh, agencies like ICE and Border Patrol. Um, But what we've seen under this administration is that that trend is only continuing to get worse. 
Um, and now with the way that tech and data have been expanding surveillance and expanding this dragnet of data, um, both absorption, but then also the way that it's being commodified and is affecting the broader economy, um, we understand that all of these things are kind of contributing to an even more hostile environment. And especially under the context of the Trump administration, where you know his campaign from the beginning, before he was ever able to get into the White House, was based off of um, you know pointing, telling a story where immigrants were really put uh, painted as the villains of the the story, which were really kind of used as scapegoats for a lot of issues that we're seeing in the U.S. and more broadly um, across the world. Um, and so we knew that from the beginning this administration was going to try to create policies where the cruelty was the point. It wasn't just that it happened to be cruel, but it was actually trying to use cruelty as a deterrent for immigration, using cruelty as a way to make political points, using cruelty as a way of telling a story that would activate a far-right, um, white xenophobic base um, that was going to come to be able to protect the agenda that this administration is putting forward. So we see all of these things kind of uh, happening in combination with 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 what has have been happening historically. Um, so Yacinta, you mentioned race policy of cruelty. Um, I would like to delve a little bit deeper into that and talk about the harsh treatment of immigrants at the border um, and look at this as you know an infringement against their rights and whether this is a reflection of broader racial tension. So I'd like to go into that. Do you think what role do you see race playing in the treatment of immigrants at the border? The, the laws, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in most places, have always been based on race. I mean, in the 1920s, when the laws criminalizing migration were passed, right, in, in America, um, the point of the laws was literally to deal with the quote-unquote Mexican problem. Um, and so from the beginning, they stemmed from, and, and the, the senator who, pro, who, who pro proposed these laws was, you know, a pro-lynching, extremely racist um, senator who explicitly was talking about white supremacy. And so from its inception, these laws and the, the framework of needing to keep certain people out and allowing some people to have the quote-unquote merits to come in were based on race and were based on class. And so what we're seeing now is just uh, uh, the same process uh, kind of manifesting itself in a different way um, under this historical moment, right? And so we see, especially in, you know, here in the U.S., we're seeing at the southern border amounts, you know, huge amounts of folks from Central America, Black immigrants um, trying to come across. And of course, the violence that is being used against them is even more extreme and is, of course, based on, on race and class. And, you know, I think the thing that's just important to note is that this process is only going to get even more intense as climate change continues to have an impact on our planet. Right. We see more and more people being forced to leave, not only because of poverty, not only because of political turmoil, but because climate change, in addition to those things, is making is displacing more and more people. And so folks are having to choose survival. And so as that process comes to, to, to fruit, we're seeing all of these tensions happen more and more. We also see the role of technology in 
the preserving of the status quo as people are seeing that climate change is going to have an impact on their own wealth and safety. Folks are thinking about not only controlling migration, but using technology to, pro to protect their own wealth, knowing that, um, you know, the planet is going to be shifting in ways that's going to be disruptive. Okay. So, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about sort of the 1920s, that this isn't something new, but like, of course, the sophistication of it is getting worse and worse. And of course, the problems that sort of lead to displacement are becoming more intense. So I'm wondering, though, in this particular moment, people seem to often throw back to Ellis Island as a liberatory moment of having made it, of safe haven. And sort of what's your what's your take on this particular picture? Because it seems that it's not fully representative or truthful. You know, na nation states have always used different mythologies to be able to describe their creation and kind of their history. Um, you know, I think there the, the U.S. has been a country that has been, um, that was created based on stolen land, that was created based on the annihilation of, of many of its of native populations, um, and on the forced labor of, you know, Black people who were stolen from their home countries. And so there has been kind of a, a, a narrative of Ellis Island and, and, and the liberation and migration patterns as being something that, you know, the, the history of the U.S. tries to catch on to to be able to tell the story. And then there are definitely people who are able to come through that way. But there's also very horrible stories about Ellis Island. And there's also very, when we look back at those same laws in those same times, their race and class and who was allowed and who was considered worthy. And so I think the, the, the mythology of, of the past but also, I think, you know, there, there, is, there is opportunity in the aspirational nature of, of some of those desires. The question is just how do we use it in a way that isn't negating um, or, uh, yeah, hiding the true history of, of, of what this country is. You, you mentioned some of the horrors, you know, involved in Ellis Island, and I'm thinking about some of the processes um, of how, like, people were assessed on Ellis Island in particular. So as you said, like, like along lines of like whether they would be a burden on the state for whether they were medically ill or of the right stock and sort of all of the, all of this language, right? Like it, it seems to kind of seep into exactly how American immigration is functioning today, but maybe in a disaggregated way. And I wonder like the communities on behalf of whom you advocate, like how they have been particularly affected by the new sophisticated ways of assessing whether people are the right kind of immigrant? You know, I, I think throughout, throughout history, the U.S. government has always tried to create its own ways of assessing whether or not people are considered worthy or, you know, of value to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so that has always been the underlying kind of rationale. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing it once again right now when we think about, for example, some of the bans on legal migration um, that this, the Trump administration is putting into place, also trying to assess if people are going to need resources from the state. Well, really, we understand that what it is is just giving more power to immigration authorities to decide who they want to let in or not. Um, but the other place where we've seen this come up very much so has been under this conversation of around who deserves to be deported. And so many times immigrant rights groups have tried to plead with the state 
to, to sort of justify why we should be allowed to stay, right? So we are valedictorians at Harvard. We are, you know, we came at no fault of our own, right? This is many times the narrative that surrounds um, undocumented youth or young people. Um, or we don't have criminal record, right, is another way that people have kind of used to, or we're not criminals, we're just immigrants, have been other kind of terms that people have used to try to say why they are worthy of citizenship or, or should not be deported. And what we've seen is that that has also contributed to a narrative that if you have any contact with the criminal legal system, that that should automatically disqualify you from being allowed to, to, to have um, citizenship or to be safe from immigration enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what that has allowed is that we understand that in the United States, the history of policing is directly linked to protecting white supremacy and directly linked to preserving slavery. And so when we see the the practices around policing and incarceration in America, um, that is why we have the highest incarceration rate in the planet, um, because we have a a system of of law enforcement that is based on race, that is based on class, and not actually based on public safety. Mm -hmm. And so we create a system where any contact with law enforcement is automatically going to deem you a quote unquote criminal, mark you as unworthy and have all of these consequences. But if you are you know, working class and live in particular neighborhoods, it is always going to be more likely for you to have that contact with the police. And so in some ways it creates kind of a, a revolving door between contact with police enforcement and immigration enforcement that is just contributing to the same process. And so that's why for us, it's been very important as we're both fighting for um, protections for immigrants and fighting for justice in the immigration system, that we have to understand that it is connected to not only abolishing ICE, but abolishing the police and the prison system, because they are all connected and kind of preserving the same forms of state control that we're trying to fight against. Yacinta, you do a lot of this work through your activism yourself. Could you tell us a bit about the organization, Mijente, and also your current campaigns, um, any recent challenges or recent wins? So Mijente is a political home for Latinx and Chicanx changemakers in the U.S. Um, We've been around for, I think it's a little bit over five years now. Um, And for us, it was really important to have a place where the Latinx and Chicanx communities could build community, could build power, and be thinking about how we're, you know, building for an entire community in different ways. So, for example, one of the things that we've gotten a lot of inspiration from has been a group in, in Chile called the Movimiento de Pobladores en Lucha. Um, so the, 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 how we, the residents of, of the people, people in, in, in struggle um, in Chile who have been talking about sometimes we have to build power outside of the state, right? So sometimes, or against the state, right? Um, where we're fighting, you know, against oppressive policies, where we're fighting for, for demands that our communities have, but we're asking the state to be the one to take action or to change its rules. But sometimes we have to fight, you know, and create alternatives outside of the state. And that's where we're able to kind of use the beauty and the intelligence and the brilliance of our communities to create options that our communities need, right? Sometimes those are co-ops, sometimes those are collectives, sometimes those are community gardens, but we have so much to offer and so much that we can build for ourselves and between each other. 
Um, and sometimes we have to be, build power from the state, right? And sometimes that means getting involved in electoral politics. Sometimes that means, you know, getting involved in elections. Sometimes that means running candidates. And so for us, it was really important to build a political home that was able to be building power on all of these fronts, knowing that it isn't about just one tactic or one strategy, but it is actually about combining all of them to be able to, to get the, the, the world that our communities deserve and that, that we're fighting for. So at Mi Gente, um, we both have an individual membership network of folks that are participating in all of these fronts of struggle, but then we also participate in our own campaigns. And so as a senior campaign organizer for Mi Gente, I've particularly been working on a campaign called No Tech for ICE, um, where we've been fighting against the tech and data companies that are helping build up the infrastructure for ICE's deportation machinery. So targeting not only companies that are doing data analytics, but also companies that are doing cloud storage for, for ICE or are providing the data itself um, to be able to, to fuel the way that ICE not only detains and deports their people, but also identifies and surveils them to be able to enact violence against them. Um, Yacinta, you mentioned power. So power outside the state, power within the state, building an alternative source of power. I would like to talk about ICE, um, you know, the amount of power available to the agency and how you see power playing out between large corporations and government agencies. So if you could give us a little bit more information about how that works um, and the technological infrastructure that sort of supplants and helps ICE carry out its job? After 9-11 in the U.S., um, the government decided to create the Department of Homeland Security um, and within that create um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement as a police force that was solely dedicated to immigration enforcement. And so this was, you know, like we've talked about the U.S. having a long history of racist violence in terms of immigration enforcement. But it was a particular moment where immigration enforcement was considered part of protecting the homeland um, and had a very uh, a particular tone to it that would kind of allow for the most violence and the most policing possible. Um, and so since then, ICE has just continued to grow and has continued to build more and more power for itself as an agency um, without with very little um, supervision and without any accountability. Um, and so literally ICE is a police force at the behest of the president um, and whatever his immigration policy is. Um, and so we've seen ICE not only have access to more and more financial resources, but what it's been able to do with those financial resources is invest in a huge surveillance machinery and in um, a huge detention uh, machinery. So at this particular moment, um, over 50,000 people a day are being held in immigration uh, custody and immigration detention. Um, it's the highest number um, in a very, very long time. And so we, we really understand it as a huge escalation of what's been happening and the torture and the suffering that people are going through because it's not only that more people are being detained, but people are being detained for longer and longer periods of time. Um, but we also see that part of what ICE is doing with all of this money is investing in technology and data contracts that allow them to surveil people um, and control people's information and know people's exact location. Um, and so at currently about only about 10% of DHS's budget is being spent on data and data management, and that number is only growing. 
Um, so we've seen a tremendous amount of companies, many of them for a long time have been invested in the military industrial complex. But I think part of what people are starting to see is like, oh, this technology that was designed for war or designed for international surveillance, we can actually bring it to a militarized U.S. border and then actually start to use it in the interior of the country against immigrant communities first and then against the entire population later. And so people are seeing that, especially under uh, an administration such as the one that we are in right now, there is a huge appetite to invest in those types of contracts. And so, for example, NQTEL, which is the um, investment side of the CIA, has been investing in tons of tech companies that are creating tools and gadgets and, and programs that allow them to process more and more information and to be able to surveil more and more people. Um, and these things are now quickly getting uh, being accessed by ICE agents and then, you know, kind of brought into the population more broadly. Um, so it's a very scary thing because we're seeing both the rise in the power of this police force that is ICE, but also the rise in the power of these companies that are providing the tech and data and then having ownership over that information um, when we don't have federal oversight of any type or any sort of regulations that could keep them in check in any way, shape, or form. How do you even begin to dismantle the machinery with such an expansive infrastructure? Like when the government isn't your friend because there's no regulation in place and we have sort of a rudimentary overview of, of how the tech plays out, you at Mihente released this report about who's behind ICE and elucidated some of the products that were being used uh, and to what ends. But I imagine that's just a small portion of it. And there's so much that we don't see. So what can we do? And, and, and how are we fighting this? We are definitely in a very difficult moment where, um, you know, we see the rise of the far right in several countries, including here in the U.S., um, and see the rise of the far right and then see them in, in government, right? And so it is definitely a moment where, for a lot of us, we've had to be ha take a hard look at our strategies and how we're fighting on multiple levels. But I think one of the things that is becoming clearer and clearer is that both we have to get involved in pushing the government and elections, but many of these tech companies um, and these corporations, they're starting to amass even more power and information than governments. And so for us as organizers, it makes us understand that we both have to be working to abolish ICE, but we also have to be working to develop corporate strategies that are talking about how capital is contributing to the problem mm -hmm. and taking on these co companies head on. And so, you know, for the first part of, of the campaign, you know, we produced the Who's Behind ICE report to be able to, you know, expose and educate people on what, like, as you're describing, a small sliver of, of this machinery, but at least to give people an understanding of, of what's happening and who's behind it. Um, you know, we have to be, as organizers, we have to tell a story of what's, what is underway and how it's going to impact the terrain of the fight moving forward. You know, we have the very hard task of having to both work on understanding and dismantling, you know, hundreds of years of oppressive systems that have been used against our communities, while at the same time have the the vision of understanding where these companies and where these governments are trying to go with new systems of control to be able to resist the, the, the tendency sometimes of reinforcing them. So 
So for example, one of the things that we've been seeing is, for example, in the US, a lot of folks have been fighting to end cash bail, right? So that people who are arrested in the criminal legal system, you know, that it is fundamentally unfair that people are not able to get out because they're too poor to pay their bail. Um, but what the system is doing is saying, okay, we'll take away cash bail. And now what we're going to use is predictive algorithms to determine whether, who should be released from detention and who should not. Um, but the truth is that those same algorithms are reinforcing racial stereotypes, racial bias, mm -hmm. and, you know, the same systems that we're seeing. Yep. Or, for example, we'll see Democrats will say, we don't need a brick or mortar border wall. What we need is smart surveillance at the border. And we should uh -huh. be investing billions of dollars and billions of dollars into these tech companies that can detect when drugs are coming. Or they'll say, you're right, we don't need brick and mortar prisons. What we need are ankle shackles to be able to surveil people and control people as they go along. And so part of what we're trying to do through this campaign is really raise awareness of these are not alternatives. These are not smart solutions. These are actually expansions of the same form of state control that we're fighting against. And so it really does help change the conversation. It helps change the demands. And it helps people understand where, what to be looking out for as we're trying to search for true freedom for our communities. And so I think part of what we're doing with the campaign is both you know, exposing the tech companies, tarnishing their brand, bringing in students, bringing in investors, bringing in frontline communities to all have their role in these campaigns, but also really kind of telling our organizers and telling our, our freedom fighters, this is the next front of battle. How are we preparing for it as we're still going through these other campaigns? And so it's, it, it, it takes a lot. We're, we're asking people to do a lot. Um, but that's, you know, part of, of what being in movement is about. Yacinta, you said in your, um, just now that, um, part of what the work of organizing involves is telling a story. Um, and so part of that is the story of who is responsible, the story of what we've gotten wrong about the history of immigration, um, and the history of immigration policies. But then I imagine part of that story is also what we're fighting for and what we're fighting toward. Um, so you mentioned some of the solutions that are not really solutions. Um, and part of the story is getting away from those. But then I'm wondering how you go about telling the story of what we're moving toward or what the battle is for. So earlier you used the term of Mijente being a political home, which I think, I don't know, I haven't heard that phrase before. And that's really striking to me in the context of migration, I think, when home is such a loaded term. Um, and also when home has been used kind of viciously in protectionist terms or like patriotic terms of being like, you know, homeland security, this is our home, we're doing this for our nation. Um, and the phrase you used is, of course, so different from that. So sorry, this is a very long-winded question of what is the story of where we're headed to or what we're fighting for? Many times we talk about, you know, another world being possible um, and knowing that, okay, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll take a different stab at this. So part of the reason that we use the term political home is because it is a political home where we are uplifting certain principles. And so we talk about that in Mi Gente, we're not only pro-Latinx, but we're also explicitly pro-Black, pro-women, 
pro-queer, pro-trans, pro-worker, pro-planet, um, because our community is all of those things and more. And so, you know, sometimes people use the term intersectionality, right, um, as a way of describing needing to be able to connect all of these fronts of battle and all of these fights for liberation. But, you know, and sometimes that's a term that works for folks, but I think one of the things that we're trying to do is, is show that we can't be single issue and we can't be single strategy, right? There's no way to fight for immigrant rights and not fight for trans liberation. And if you don't understand how those are connected, then come into the political home and we can help do the work of explaining how all of those things have to have points of connection. Because if we're going to be building true power for our communities, we're going to have to be able to be winning on all of those fronts. And so, you know, part of what we're, what we're fighting for is, is a place where people can be free and people can be free, free to migrate and be feel free to be who they are wherever they want to be. And that we can have a planet that would be able to sustain that and sustain people being able to actually choose where they want to build their home and their community. You know, right now between issues around global warming and climate change, between political instability, between issues of poverty and, and wealth disparities, many times those things are not possible. In addition to all of the issues around our societies kind of being restrictive of people being able to, to be who they are fully without violence against, used against them because of that. And so for us, all of those fights are, are kind of connected. Um, but we need a place where we're actually learning from each other and learning how to organize and building fronts of, of unity and struggle, not only in the U.S., but internationally. I think for us, one of the things that's been so exciting about the No Tech for Ice campaign has actually been the connection with, with campuses outside of the U.S. Um, using the hashtag No Techs for Tyrants, right? Like, how are we actually building a solidarity and analysis with each other um, so that we're able to build broader movements that can kind of insert new ideas and new forms of thinking into how we're, we're organizing together. Everything you said today is obviously extremely important, but I just want to ask you, what is one sort of key takeaway that you'd like our audiences to go home with? You know, I think many times people think that this fight is about fighting against technology or fighting against the use of data. And I think what we've been really trying to highlight is how left at the hands of corporations that are simply consolidating more power and more control over our lives, we're seeing this tech and data being used against communities as opposed to being used in a way that would actually create a more just and just world that would benefit everyone. And so I think for us, it's really important to understand it within the, ca the context of, of capital, understanding it within the context of immigration and understanding it within the context of how states are using violence and um, policing to control the bodies of people that they think are a threat to preserving white supremacy. And so I think understanding all of those connections is part of what this movement is about. It's not just around fighting against particular companies or fighting against particular technologies, but it is actually about preserving people's human right to be able to move um, across borders for their own safety and, and for the well-being of their families. It is actually about preserving um, freedom from surveillance and the ability of movements to push ideas for, for different forms and for us to actually have um, 
a way to preserve democracy and having a voice um, in the political systems that are governing our lives. And so it's actually about bigger picture ideas, not just about particular algorithms or who's using what data, but is actually around how are we making sure that we have movements that are stronger than corporations or than repressive governments. Thank you, Yacinta. I think that's a really good point to end our conversation on looking towards something. Thank you so much for speaking with us. No, thank you all so much. And thank you for listening. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at Declarations Pod, or send us an email at editor at declarations.com. Tune in next time for more Declarations. Please let us know what you thought about today's discussion or if there's something you'd like to know more about. You can send us an email, editor at declarationspod.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at declarationspod. You can also check out our website, declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics. These are written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Mispa Malik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jin Min Tan is our executive producer.